subscribe to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Stephen Hackett, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Mr. Jason Snell. Hi, Stephen. How's it going? It's uh, it's going well, Jason. You doing okay today? I'm doing okay. Happy birthday. You had a birthday last week. I did. The big, uh, the big 3-0, but we're going to talk about that a little later i think yeah it's space related it turns out <laughs> it is yeah. it is the um i don't i don't know did you do this for your kids like do you have like the newspaper from the day your kids were born or is that something that has already gone away oh no i do i actually have the in in my nightstand in the bottom drawer of my nightstand i have the newspapers from both of my children's birthdays the san francisco chronicle front section for both those days so that they can look at it later in life and go hey when i was born they still had newspapers (laughs) well i was gonna say our my oldest is seven uh, so I, your youngest and my oldest aren't that far apart, really, and I did not do that for any of my kids. Like, yeah. uh, but that, that's uh, that's fine. So my I have it from the day I was born, and it has a uh, the Challenger on it. So yeah, space space related space. But, but we're gonna get there uh, first. I thought we could tell people about our new Tumblr. Oh yes, I, I it's it's so new that I just set it up a few days ago, and now uh, we're gonna tell people about it. So we we come up with links. Um, to things that are interesting, pictures that are interesting, and I always thought that that uh, we should we should probably have a Tumblr for liftoff. So now we have one. It's liftoffpodcast.tumblr.com. So you can go there. There's a little ask us thing. So if you want to send us questions, you can do it that way. You can also just use the regular uh, link on the uh, relay.fm/liftoff page. But we do have a Tumblr. I hopefully will start using it, and I invited you to uh, to join it too, so that we can um. We'll post links and pictures and, you know, whatever else we, we find that we think is interesting about space stuff. It's a good place for us to kind of, like, leave a bunch of space stuff. So if you do Tumblr or you want to bookmark it, um, just uh, check it out, liftoffpodcast.tumblr.com. And it's it, it's decorated with the, the I think, never-before-seen um, orange alternate of the Liftoff logo in the background at the top. It, so that's a little is. bonus. A little bonus for it's, people. It's beautiful, especially on the desktop too. It's real cropped in, so you can see all the the detail yeah, in artwork, uh-huh. which is yeah. just really awesome. Frank Frank does a good job. He does. So we'll be posting stuff there. I think it'll be fun too, since we're a fortnightly show to have some stuff coming out that's not uh, every other week. So it'll be it'll be fun. Add that to your uh, your Tumblr experience. And yeah, we'll... tumble that one. Tumble it. Is that the verb? I'm not cool enough to know the I, verb. I I'm not either. But uh, you, my understanding is that you throw in a dryer sheet and then you tumble it. Oh, is that how it works? It's important to have a dryer sheet. Otherwise, you get static. You don't want any static electricity on your blog. Or on your spacecraft. True. (laughs) So so we have some news. Uh, We have four big stories this week. We're going to start in Commercial Crew Corner. Uh, This is a couple weeks ago now, but we we wanted to uh, discuss it. The SpaceX crew had a launch. And they, remember about a month ago or so, they landed... Uh, the stage one of the Falcon 9 on land at the Cape. Yep. This time they've gone back to trying what, what they call drone ships, which are basically just unmanned barges, but drone it's ships sounds cooler. way cooler. <laughs> uh, and and they it was a, a mixed result. So the, their mission was successful. They had their, their payload in orbit. And it was actually, uh, it was actually launched from uh, just your neck of the woods, wasn't it? Well, I mean, generally, it was a I Van- mean, California versus Florida. It's- yes, exactly. It was Van- it's Vandenberg, which is near Santa Barbara in Southern California, and um, 
it's useful. Vandenberg's a good place to launch because um, you can launch in a polar orbit, and right. and and basically it's um, south facing from 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 Vandenberg. You can basically set your launch, and it goes out over the ocean. So that's one of the things that you want for all, for a rocket launch is to not have it be over land, where if you have to blow up the the rocket, that there are uh, debris People. everywhere. Right. So. Um, so for polar orbits, Vandenberg's a good place to launch because it, it, they uh, they can launch from there out over the water and into a polar orbit, which is what they were doing for this uh, the satellite deploy that they did. So that's cool. I mean, for people who don't understand that, um, regular orbit from like the Cape, you're going uh, basically around the equator, and it's not just the equator. It's 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 uh, more complex than that, but it's that it's it's that direction. It's going kind of across the continents, as you might think if you were spinning a globe. And for the Vandenberg launches, they're doing this polar orbit that that the idea there is that you're going um you know all the way over the south pole and then all the way over the north pole and what's cool about that orbit is you can you can cover every inch of the earth with a polar orbit because you are going over the poles as the earth rotates so basically um you you can see you can be right over many more you know basically all of the earth when you have a polar orbit and you can't do that if you're in an orbit that is equatorial it's uh, that's probably not what they're called, but uh, and so that's the reason why they launched from the from uh, from Vandenberg and not from the Cape. And they were going to launch as we talked about uh, in our our shuttle show. Uh, they were going to launch space shuttles from from Vandenberg, and, right. In order to put satellites in polar orbits and things like that, and, and they ended up not ever doing that. But SpaceX, they had their drone ship out in the uh, out in the Pacific, and um, they got so close to landing mm-hmm. on the drone ship, which would have been a first. And it sounds like a hardware failure of the sort of saddest sort, which is that one of the landing legs didn't lock, and so it fell over. Right, a very, a very mechanical type failure. Yeah, they hit, they hit the target essentially on the ship in the ocean, and it would have probably been a win if they, but, um, but they had a problem with like the latch on one of the, on one of the landing legs that didn't latch essentially. And so then it toppled over, and uh, they had to blow it up, or it blew itself up. Or yeah, I think it blew itself up. However, that works. Yeah, it turns out you slam a rocket full of rocket fuel, even mostly empty, uh, against uh, a drone ship. Uh, bad things happen. Yeah, so it's it's close, and and they're getting closer to it. And, so close. And again, this is all about reusing that first stage to bring costs down, like we've discussed, and. You know, uh, there was a lot of a lot of people talking about this on Twitter. I saw the the morning that it was happening, saying you know they, that they failed at it, and and SpaceX is very careful in saying that this is all experimental. There, it is a secondary mission objective after you know launching the satellite or group of satellites or whatever it is that their payload is for that particular launch, and to be able to hit a barge in the middle of the ocean that is. Uh, uh, moving right, it's it's coming up and down with the waves, and there's wind and and, and Basically, they were center, and then just to have a what seems like a, a relatively minor mechanical failure. I'm sure it was heartbreaking for those engineers, but it's uh, it's exciting stuff to watch. Yeah, they're they're um, on the on the webcast. They they made a point of saying this is ex- experimental. Mm-hmm. It it will probably fail. Don't get your hopes up, and it's okay if it fails because that that's not the. You know the point is for us to learn, and they actually ended up learning that they're really good with their targeting, and they have some mechanical problems that with their landing legs, as it turns out, that they need to fix. Yep. So this comes right, uh, right about the same time where uh, 
Blue Origin, which is the the company owned by uh, Jeff Bezos, maker of your favorite charts in the technology industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they they've been uh, they've been in the news recently. They they landed their rocket uh, first stage of their rocket uh, back on Earth actually before SpaceX did, but as we discussed, a very different sort of a vehicle, very different uh, speeds and trajectory they're dealing with. They basically went straight up and then straight down where. The Falcon 9 went out and then has to kind of flip around and come back. But uh, anyways, so so they've done that in the past. And here in, uh, what was it, January 22nd, uh, they reflew the Stage 1 that had landed previously, which, of course, is the, the goal of this, right? It's great if you can land it again, but if you can't fly it again, then what's the point? Right. <laughs> and uh, so they've done it. So they the, the new Shepard booster that, that flew uh, back in November, they... They basically reused, so they had you know, rehabbed it, you know, upgraded some things. I think they said they upgraded some software and had updated some hardware and replaced some things, but more or less the same rocket and uh, did it again, which is again in this in this series of you know competing events between these two companies uh, a big step. Um, and while it's not you know it's technically advanced or as impressive as I think what SpaceX is doing, it's still an important step towards actually proving that these things can be reused, that you're not just, you know, trying to land them on drone ships and uh, to stick them to a museum, but that they, you can actually go clean it up and, and refuel it and, and reignite it and use it again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a, uh, we, it's a fun time to see all, both of these companies doing this. Um, and as we said, SpaceX is doing, some uh, they're they're at a different level because they're actually launching things into orbit and blue origin isn't at that point yet they're kind of just going up and back down but still it's a big deal yeah and i think the i think it's interesting the difference between those two approaches where uh blue origin they're not you know they're not flying any for any customers right so spacex spacex is flying like i think it was the jason 3 satellite uh this past time uh, flying real hardware that companies you know or the government pays them to put into orbit or Blue Origin is, is doing all this experimental stuff kind of before the rest of it, which it, I don't know which way is better, but it's definitely a different approach where SpaceX is saying, hey, look, we have a viable vehicle. We can take missions. We can take uh, satellites or whatever into orbit. And uh, after we finish with that, we're going to experiment you know, back with just our own hardware once we've done the work, where Blue Origin is kind of getting that done first. And... Uh, I'll be interested to see when Blue Origin makes some progress here in the next couple of years and and if they start winning contracts and flying for customers uh, are are they going to be so certain about this reusability by then that it'll just be a foregone conclusion like, oh yeah we 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 reuse all rockets we got all that sorted out years ago or if there'll be another kind of round of this sort of uh, testing and 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 that sort of thing so just it's different approaches but mm-hmm. I think um I think it's interesting to see how they how they differ I wonder if the people who will put payload on a re, on the first uh, SpaceX reusable um, will be like they'll get a they'll get a deal. I, <laughs> I would imagine that's what it'll be. Is like, well, right. okay, you're going to be the first reuse that we've done, um, but we'll cut you we'll cut you a deal because your risk is greater. Or yeah. you know, however, I don't know how they do that. Or if there's insurance, I think it's insur- like a coupon. Insurance, yeah, it's a Groupon actually. <laughs> uh, you know, insurance for space launches probably is a thing, right? You I'm sure prob- it is. You probably get your thing insured, and you pay. You, you know, you pay that. So if your if your thing gets blown up, you can you can you can deal with it. So you know, please, in- space insurance agents, don't call us. 
<laughs> we're not sending anything to space. No, well, not yet. Yet. <laughs> they get these rockets reusable to be cheaper for us. Yeah. What would the Liftoff podcast send into space, I wonder? That's something to think about. Hmm. Something to think about. So anyways, so, so some interesting stuff going on in this commercial crew area. Um, yeah. And these private companies, again, you know, they're competing against each other, but but sort of playing off each other at the same time. And, you know, there's some some uh, somewhat friendly, uh, somewhat not friendly, you know, even like Twitter back and forth between the CEOs, which I just find mm-hmm. endlessly amusing that, you know, these billionaires who own all these companies are basically like subtweeting each other like it's all, it's all very exciting to me as someone who um apparently needs a better hobby anyways <laughs> uh jason why don't you tell us about our first sponsor this week oh sure our uh our podcast liftoff hi that's the name of the podcast brought to you as uh often almost always, by the good people at Wobbleworks who make Luminos. Now, if you haven't heard of Luminos, it is, you should be paying attention because we talk about it almost every episode. It is an all-in-one mobile astronomy app. It works on the iPhone. It works on your iPad. It even works on the Apple Watch. And it is, uh, it is something that's been in development for more than a decade. It brings the power of all of those classic desktop astronomy programs onto your mobile devices, which is great because chances are when you're outside looking up at the sky, you probably don't have your iMac out there or, your, <laughs> or, or maybe even your laptop, but you might have your phone or your iPad or your Apple Watch. Uh, Wobbleworks, the makers of Luminos, proud to kick off its sixth year of free feature updates in the App Store by announcing the release of Luminos version 9. Luminos 9 uh, brings the largest star catalog available anywhere on mobile to all your devices. It's got the complete UCAC 4, up to 113 million stars. But you get to choose which catalog size best fits your needs and storage. So if you don't have a lot of free space, you can download a smaller star catalog uh, with a single tap. You can even augment the catalog with free supplemental data, such as photometry and proper motion. Luminos 9 supports the latest iOS 9 features, including split-screen multitasking and spotlight search. And the Luminos app for Apple Watch has been updated for WatchOS 2, so it's faster and more reliable. Wobbleworks, we've told you about them before. They're a family business. They have more than 50 years combined of software experience. And they've made Luminos to delight current astronomy fans, perhaps such as yourself, and create new ones, like uh, like any children you may know, for example. You can answer that question about what is that that we're looking at. Is that a planet? Is that a star? You can have the answers. There are detailed planet and moon maps tens of thousands of asteroids and comets, millions of stars. There's support for wireless telescope control. I did ask the question in the last episode, are there wired and wireless telescopes and how does that work? And I was told, yes, indeed, some telescopes are wired and some are wireless. Anyway, the you don't have to wire your phone to the telescope is the point here. And a whole lot more. Uh, find out all the details by going to wobbleworks.com and uh, check out Luminos in the App Store. So thank you to Wobbleworks for sponsoring Lift off once again. So, uh, coming up next uh, in this week's episode, we're going to talk about Opportunity, who just celebrated 12 years on Mars. Mm. Earth years. Earth years. But uh, it's pretty incredible. And in looking at this, you know, Opportunity and Spirit were really, uh, they were very short missions, right? I think about 90 days. Um, they launched back in 2000, or Opportunity at least, was back in 2004, and it's still operating. They're still making discoveries. They're still driving around the red planet. 
I've just checked. Um, it's incredible. It's uh, it's six point three Martian years. Perfect. Do that you have a Earth to Mars uh, calculator somewhere? I I did find one. We'll we can put it we can put it in the show notes. Perfect. Uh, from the Exploratorium, it is you put in your birth date and it will tell you your age on other worlds. <laughs> That's a pretty good little website. Uh, so it's so it's it, obviously it's it's a story because I think partially because Opportunity was a ninety day mission and this hardware and this program have just far exceeded I think the wildest dreams of anyone involved. I mean, you go through some of these articles in the show notes and. People really are people working on it. Are really, just so amazed and so excited that this is still possible. Mm-hmm. So, so beyond what it was designed for. Um, and I thought maybe we could talk about a couple of the uh, the mission highlights. Um, reading through here, you know, it's it's really there's been some interesting science coming out of of the Opportunity Program. It's it's amazing this I, I I do wonder sometimes if you talk to the people who build these things if you get the if they're if they're sort of doing the Scotty thing from Star Trek where they're like well it's going to last 2 years and the back of their mind they're like it's going to last 12 years. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if that's true or if they're you know how much of it is about what funding is for the mission versus how long they think that that it'll last but I'm curious because we have done um, some pretty amazing things as humans. I'm saying, not like us personally, <laughs> in terms of of longevity in these in these uh, Mars rovers that they they've all lasted kind of spectacularly long. And Opportunity is a is a great example. You know, roving across Mars for twelve years is pretty incredible. Yeah, there's uh, what is it? It's forty two point four five kilometers on the clock. Um, yeah. And if you <laughs> on the Wikipedia page, there's a um, there's a map of where it's gone, and it really is it really is pretty cool. Uh, and what I had you know, kind of looking through the, these articles, I had actually uh, forgotten that they released images of basically Opportunity taking a photo of its own landing site, which is sort of funny to think about because mm. uh, it, it came down, uh, and then there's you know parachutes and debris and everything uh, and one of these photos is like a metal spring that's like broken loose from something that's sitting on the surface of mars which is it's kind of funny to me like it's something so mundane and normal but mm. it's on another planet <laughs> it's pretty pretty uh pretty wild to me oh you should uh, also uh, know that uh, that 42.45 kilometers basically it's the length of a marathon Bas- basically opportunity has done a marathon on mars over 12 years slow very slow i'll grant you but if you if you want to think in terms of of uh distance traveled it has it has uh, slowly rolled a marathon on mars pretty cool there you go uh and it was stuck in the sand for like 6 months uh so they took a little break there a little water break mm-hmm. uh a little sand yeah. break it, it won. It won the marathon anyway. It was the only one participating, so it it, it won. It's true. Uh, it's true. Um, but if you look through these photos, so you, you, there's some of these touchdown photos. There's what's called the Opportunity Ledge, basically a series of of outcroppings that the rover studied, uh, including a rock called uh, El Capitan, which is. Hmm. Um, uh, was like the rock abrasion tool was used for the first time here. So basically, they they can go up and drill and then clean where it was drilled. So you can see um, they're looking at not only the formation of the rock, but potentially what the rock is made of, and a lot of uh, interesting 
and new things discovered. This really spirit and opportunity really made this possible in a way that was not possible before to see inside a rock. Um, yeah. And you could drive around so you could go see different types of rocks, which is um, pretty neat. So there's all in this, this area, there's like uh, outcroppings, there's thin, I mean, they, 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 there's like very thin slices of layer of rock that, uh, again, all sorts of stuff digging, <laughs> um, again, to sort of the mundane on another planet is not mundane, but, um, digging a trench um that was about 50 centimeters long and 10 centimeters deep um and they discover things about the texture of the soil again just just digging a little trench uh that's in and of itself is not that impressive but um inspecting like the sides and the floor of the hole um you know things like little shiny round pebbles and um soil this really blows my mind soil that was so fine grained that the microscope the microscope on the rover couldn't tell individual particles, like mm. just very super fine stuff that we didn't know was there until we go up there and, and dig a little scratch into the surface of Mars. It's the, um, this is, I mean, this is why you need to have rovers, right? Is that you need to actually not just observe, but interact because otherwise you're just seeing things. When we fly by something, we're just seeing the surface. But with these rovers, you get to, to, you know, abrade those rocks and find out what's inside them and, and scoop up soil find out what's underneath it or analyze it, put it closer and analyze it in, in great detail. And that's what the, uh, plus as, as we've said on past shows, plus you get the sense of Mars as a place because it's moving around instead of it being like with the Vikings, there was that pan, you know, panoramas of, of Mars, but here, you know, you can have movies of just driving around on Mars. And there are, there are time, amazing kind of time-lapse movies of, of, uh, opportunity kind of driving around. Mm-hmm. And opportunity hasn't been, trouble free over the last 12 years and 2004 there was an issue with the shoulder joint uh basically they sort of changed tactic where they were basically retracting this arm and then pulling it back and they've basically just left it retracted all the time now afraid of it being stuck Uh, we mentioned earlier being caught in some sand so basically drove over my understanding is drove over uh terrain that was softer than they had anticipated and the rover sank and basically they they recreated that here on earth uh in a lab with a yeah. with a mock-up rover and sand and they recreated the angles and spent months figuring out how to program the rover to move in a way to get out and not make it worse um that really just seems like an incredible task to me of <laughs> months figuring that out and then you send the commands and then it and then it's free like it's it's pretty um pretty spectacular and and i think I think that particularly was scary because that's what um, did Opportunity Sibling in. So Spirit uh, basically, again, started to sink and actually got beached on a rock kind of uh, in its chassis between the the sets of wheels. And it was thought that, well, you know, we can do science here and just be stationary now, right? Well, we can't move anymore, but instrumentation is still working. But unfortunately, with Spirit, it was... um, in a position where it didn't have sufficient sunlight throughout right. the winter. And basically the power levels and the temperatures got too low. And it's thought that, that spirit is basically uh, in a dormant mode now. And that was back in 2010. So that's been six years um, uh, since, since spirit quit communicating with us. But um, you know, you can, you can do all this planning and you can spend all this money, but you might still get stuck on a rock. Like <laughs> still happens, I guess. Ah, uh, yeah. Happens to me all the time. Does it? 
Uh, I'm trying to think of anything else. Uh, opportunity. I mean, you've go to this Wikipedia article or go to the the NASA site about this. I mean, there's I mean, there's section after section of these discoveries of these rocks that have uh, drilled in, discovering what they're made of, discovering the chemistry, the geography. I know your two favorite subjects. Um, and it's it's still ongoing. I mean, obviously the future is. Um, unknown they in 2015 nasa was dealing with some onboard flash memory issues um and uh, i think march of last year they basically sent a software update that was designed to work around the memory that had been damaged and it's um again it's aging but so far it's still operational and hopefully for a long time to come yeah it's uh it's uh, quite a thing. I will put the link to the a YouTube video of uh, where you can actually follow it on a map on the right side of the video while you're doing the watching the time lapse of it running its marathon on the on the left side. It's pretty cool. Pretty cool stuff. That that uh yeah. And th- th- you know, based on our our conversation with Jeff in the last episode about uh we we mentioned th- uh, weird time schedules of working on other planets uh, or even just working in space and uh just think about that that I don't know if everybody is still working on it from 12 years ago but the people for 12 years there have been people at jpl in pasadena uh who are living on a martian schedule which is that 25 hour day um that's really bad <laughs> but you know that's what you got to do it's bad for interacting with other people at the very least because you're you're you know every hour every day you're you're an hour off it's jet lag of an hour every single day it seems super unpleasant to yeah mm-hmm to do but it, i mean it speaks to the the dedication of these teams right the people who do this for years and and dedicate huge sections of their career to, to a project like this especially when you go from three months to 12 years um it's got to be a heck of a thing to experience yeah so uh let's go from mars to to, to uh outer space okay we'll leave the red planet all right uh, what is going on here with this 2018 project? Do you see this? I didn't see this. What what is what's going on? 2018. This is a is this a is this like a a new space station? It, it was sort of. <laughs> so in, in that big NASA budget uh, that we spoke about. Ah yes. Yes. There's a 55 million dollar line item uh, for a habitation uh, module, basically that has to be ready by 2018. Oh, this is one of those surprise NASA Congress is telling you what to do with your money. Yeah, things. Yeah. You got to build this thing. Good news is we're giving you money. Bad news is you got to you got to work for it. You got to build this thing. Right. So this is a continuation of the idea of a deep space habitat. So a a, uh, a spacecraft that can sustain human life beyond the protection of low Earth orbit. Uh, I did again. Low Earth orbit. I can't. I just can't say it. Jason. I hate orbiting the Earth. It's the worst. It's so bad. Um, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, the idea here is, is to start doing, I mean, it's kind of like long, long duration space flight research is what, how can we have a deep space, uh, living environment? You know, what, something that you could, you could, uh, float around for out of low earth orbit and, uh, and have people, um, you know, live in it and work in it because it's, it's like a space station, although it could also be like on a, on a mission to Mars or something like that. It's like a first step to that of, of finding a large, uh, you know, a larger habit habitation module uh, that could be sent around the moon or whatever. Right. And so there's a lot of, um, 
speculation of how NASA could do this in such a short time frame. You know, people are talking about, well, could you uh, use parts of the International Space Station, or could you use you know segments of the, that built for the space station, basically, you know, build a second one of those and fly it because we already know how it works and kind of know the parameters of this hardware and uh, sort of beefing it up and, and harden it and use it for something like this. But I don't think there's any way around it. This is a pretty, um, a pretty tight timeline in a, in a period of which NASA's already busy. I mean, in addition to helping right. oversee all the commercial crew stuff we've been talking about, they are building a spacecraft as well in the Orion project and the SLS launch vehicle. It's not like NASA engineers are just um, sitting around. I mean, mm-hmm. they they are busy building new hardware of other of other classes. So it, it, on one hand, it does seem like something. It's like well. Um, is this the best, you know, best thing to do to add something else to that? But on the other hand, if, if Mars and, and these other, you know, locations, of the moon, if these things are on our radar again, then we are going to need transport. And if this is a way to sort of jumpstart that or to get that going in a way that uh, it wasn't previously, then maybe in the long term it will be good. But I think there's a lot of, my, my impression is reading about this, there's a lot of unknowns about how this is going to, happen in such a short time short time frame yeah well it'll be interesting to see this is we're we're in an interesting state about um of of space exploration where really it's this kind of uh reconsideration of what the equipment is and and uh having left the era of the space shuttle behind and having the international space station be up there already and you know its life has been extended but it's it's uh stuff that we already built now there's this new idea of uh, going beyond the commercial crew stuff to the to the stuff that NASA is doing with Orion and talking about a you know cislunar space missions. So go to uh, you know go go toward the moon, go around the moon, um, go just deeper into space than the low Earth orbit that we've been in. And what equipment do you need for that? And if you want to go to Mars or an asteroid or something like that, what equipment do you need? And so everybody seems to be um, trying a bunch of different things and. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's 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 funny. I mean, it's all in it's all in flux, but it's a good thing because the alternative would be that nobody's trying anything new, and uh, that's where we have been up until up until recently. So now there's a whole bunch of stuff that uh, you know a lot of the stuff isn't going to come off, but I feel like you have to try it, and then you'll find out what what works. Right. So in the show notes, there'll be a link as well to a PDF that NASA put out about this, uh, exploring some of the possible designs for this um, this project and. Uh, some interesting stuff in here. And again, some of it is looks familiar if you are familiar with the space station. Um, and some of it is, is, you know, a little bit further removed from that. So it's, um, I think it'll be an interesting project to add to our list of things to watch over the next couple of years. Yep. All right. This episode of liftoff is all also brought to you by our friends at Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter offer code liftoff at checkout to get 10% off. When it comes to giving yourself a place online, there's nowhere better to start than Squarespace. They give you all the power you need into your hands and they take away all the pain points like worrying about hosting or scaling or if you get stuck with something and need help. Uh, they take care of all that for you so you can focus on your project and on your content. Squarespace lets you build a site that looks professionally designed regardless of your skill level. You don't have to be you know, a web developer to, to build something here. Their tools are intuitive, they're easy to use, and you can make your website look and feel exactly how you want. And all this is powered by state-of-the-art technology. 
Uh, they ensure security and stability, and they're trusted by millions of people and some of the most respected brands in the world. Here at Relay, we use Squarespace for our blog and their store, and it's super easy just to go in and update something or publish a blog post and know that uh, it can withstand the traffic. That it'll be uh, it'll be rock solid for us. Their site templates, are, of course, are stunning to look at. They all feature responsive design, so. Uh, from your iPhone all the way up to your iPad and your iMac or anything in between, your site will look great uh, on any size of device. But this really is just the beginning. Squarespace has ton of tons of awesome features, like 24-7 support with live chat or email. They have teams located in New York, Dublin, and Portland. So wherever you are on the globe, you have somebody nearby who can help. Um, just pick up the phone or uh, send them an email or that live chat, and uh, you'll be up and running in no time. Squarespace commerce platform and their cover page are two newer features. You can uh, easily add a store to your Squarespace site with the commerce platform, or if you just need a single website, if you just have an announcement or just need a landing page somewhere, the cover page option is really fast, easy way to do that. Again, rock solid, fast hosting, and so much more. If you sign up for a year, you'll get a free domain name, allowing you to choose exactly what you want your site to be called. Squarespace plans start just $8 a month, and there's the trial requires no credit card. You can just go and start building your website today. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code LIFTOFF to get 10% off your first purchase and to show your support for this show. We thank Squarespace for their support of LiftOff and all of Relay FM. Squarespace, build it beautiful. Hey. So, why don't you tell us about uh, Planet Nine? Oh, Planet Nine. Uh yeah, this is the big this is the big one. This is it's funny. Um, I can't believe I I don't think we even have we we there there was an update to the it's not aliens story too that I should probably throw in at some point. But uh, Planet Nine is the big one. Uh, we we've been talking about it for a while. Mike Brown, uh, who is this uh guy at Caltech who famously discovered Eris with with some other people. Uh, Eris is the the outer solar system body that um uh dethroned pluto well it wasn't pluto wasn't the king of anything but it got through through uh ultimately through pluto out of the planet club because eris <laughs> has more mass than pluto and they thought it might be bigger it's probably a little bit smaller but it's it's more massive than pluto and so there was this question of like well is that the 10th planet and if that's a planet then are these other outer solar system bodies planets and then what about Ceres? and is it a planet and they just uh the iau basically said yep pluto's out it's a dwarf planet it's a minor planet whatever it's it's like these other things eris is one of those two and we're done so mike brown uh he goes by pluto killer on twitter and he wrote a book called why i killed pluto and how it had it coming which is actually a pretty great book um about the his his search for these outer outer uh, solar system bodies. Anyway, they he and a a colleague Konstantin uh, uh, Batygin have been working on this thing that they I think they actually set out to disprove a theory that there was a large body in the outer solar system uh, that as yet undiscovered. Like uh, like a you know this has been legendary for 150 almost 200 years. The idea that there's a uh, that there's a planet X, like out beyond, out out beyond what is known, and the only time that 
observations have led to the discovery of a planet was the discovery of Neptune because the orbit of Uranus didn't make sense and they did some calculations and they found Neptune. But since then, lots of people have said, well, I did some calculations and there's definitely a planet X, uh, including what led to the discovery of Pluto, which people thought was a lot bigger than it turned out to be. And that's one of the reasons why it was made a planet, even though it's it's relatively tiny. So Brown and Batchegan uh do this analysis, uh, computer models of the solar system. They look at outer solar system uh, objects. And the reason that this happened is there's a group of outer solar system objects. Um, I think there's six of them that all are inclined. Their orbits are inclined at about the same angle. And their uh, closest point to the sun of their orbit are all suspiciously similar. So they all have suspiciously similar orbits, which... Um, I think the astronomers would tell you is unlikely to be random. There has to be a reason why these bodies are in these very similar orbits. So they do some they do some computer modeling and a lot of simulations. And what they come up with ultimately is this idea of a, a planet with 10 to 20 times the mass of the Earth. So uh, it's been depicted in some, some people say it could be rocky, but I think they, they think most likely it would be something that was like Uranus and Neptune. This is an ice giant. Um, it's a little smaller than Neptune and Uranus, but, um, but uh, still pretty big. And it's orbiting way out. The, uh, it's 20 times farther away from the sun than Neptune. So way out there, incredibly far away. Um, so they, they get this result and they think, well, that's interesting, but that is an extraordinary result. And, uh, you know, how would we be confident that, that that could possibly exist? And so one of the things you do is uh, look for proof of, basically proof of your theory. And so one of the consequences in their computer models of that orbit would be these other objects in the outer solar system orbiting basically like perpendicular to the disk of the solar system. It would be this weird side effect of having that that planet in orbit and uh and then they realized that people had discovered objects that do orbit in that way perpendicularly and they thought aha that that's almost like you know essentially they weren't they weren't building the model to predict that and they weren't even thinking about those objects but that model predicts those objects and those objects have been found and that was the moment i think uh brown said in in one of his posts about this that they um they thought oh this might be this might be real. This might be a real thing. Um, and so, yeah, they've written a paper that proposes that this uh, that this planet is out there and they are actively searching for it, as presumably other people will. It's not the people who discover this planet, you know, are going to be the people who see it. That's the challenge, because proving it on paper, I'm sure uh, Brown and Batygan would get. Uh, credit for proving its existence if it's finally found. But, you know, the 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 discovery occurs not when it's theoretically possible, but when it is seen. Right. And the beauty of it is they know what the orbit would be. the The problem is that it's almost certainly at the far reaches of its orbit, which is really far, further than we've ever imaged any anything, any object like this. And uh, so they're looking for it, but it's a little bit like finding a needle in a haystack with the lights turned off. It's very hard to find these relatively cold, dark objects. But um, 
But Mike Brown wrote that he thinks that we are absolutely we, we absolutely can see it. The challenge is pointing the telescope in the right place because our view of that far out, you know, it's these little tiny narrow views. So you have to take lots and lots of pictures of lots and lots of space in the path of that orbit. So he he says they think that they'll be able to prove its existence in the next maybe five years. And if they're lucky, maybe this year. But um, it sounds like, uh, you know, they're, the, the search is on and will continue and they're using ground-based telescopes to do it. So uh, it's pretty cool. It is, I think, worth a dose of skepticism. And I think Brown, uh, they, they made a really great site. It's findplanet9.com, which I recommend people read because they, they are both discoverers of, well, not discoverers, theorizers of Planet Nine uh, have posted there and they will continue to post there, which I think is pretty cool. And uh, Mike Brown did a post that I really love because I feel like it is in the truest spirit of science, which is called Why Planet Nine Might Not Exist. And he lists all of the good arguments he feels why they might be wrong. And he says, again, I am very confident um but it's worth talking about all those things and all their biases. And he says, actually, his big concern is that they only base this idea on those six objects. And he's concerned that um, that's that's their bias, is that it turns out there are actually a bunch of other objects who don't meet those criteria. And they, you know, they, they were uh, sort of self-selecting. Um, but I love that he is listing all the reasons they might be wrong, even though he thinks they're right. It shows his concern, you know, his trying to test his hypothesis. And I think that's a lot of fun. Um, and then the, I guess the only other note that I had about this story, um, I think it's a really cool story, but um, is the idea that uh, <laughs> the people who are on the New Horizons mission, uh, which flew past Pluto, still cannot get over the fact that Mike Brown was a participant in the demise of Pluto as a planet. Um, and they insist it's still a planet. And I totally get the human nature aspect of it, which is, you know, you, you've devoted your career to this object, Pluto, and now people are saying that it's not as important as it used to be. And you, you'd be kind of mad about it. But you, the reason I would say you could see this is um, somebody wrote an article about why they, the headline is something like why Planet Nine probably doesn't exist, which I think is, if you read the article, is way more, hedges way more than that. But it's by far the most negative article. It is not, it, it is very skeptical of its existence. The most negative article I've seen on the subject. Guess what? The only article about Planet Nine to be uh, tweeted by the New Horizons Twitter account is. <laughs> that article. So there are rivalries in science are real. <laughs> Is, is what I'm saying. I think they don't. I think they don't like Mike Brown very much. But it would be quite a story if the guy who killed Pluto as the ninth planet ended up discovering a new ninth planet to replace it. It's it's exciting, and I I'm glad you said what you did about their. They're kind of laying all the cards on the table, and I think that's important in something like this where they, uh, I think they could be proven right, or they could be proven wrong, or could be a long time before it's discovered, right? Like that five-year window could be actually bigger. And so I think it's only fair of them to say, hey, you know, th these, this is why we think what we think, and this is why we wrote what we wrote. But there is this other side of it, right, that um, there are other factors and there are things that um, could make this thing go the other way. And I, I, I find that pretty refreshing to read. Um, I also think that there, there's an aspect of this that is them saying, we're confident enough in this to publish this paper, 
And it was not, you know, just a surprise blog post. They had a peer-reviewed, refereed paper that was published. Uh, we're confident enough that we are ready to publish. But at the same time, we haven't found it. And we're looking, but we haven't found it. And by publishing, they're saying, you can go look for it too. Or pro prove us wrong, or you can or help us find it. And the fact that it's findplanet9.com is a lot of fun too. So, you know, uh, it's... Uh, I mean, it's just kind of a cool story. What if the, the solar system that we live in is even more complex? The, the, the story of the solar system of the last 15 years has really been this discovery uh, that it is way more complicated than we thought it was, that there are lots of Pluto-like objects, or at least there are several Pluto-like objects out there, that the, the Kuiper belt and the, and the Oort cloud and, and, and where they are and what objects are in them and how they got there, understanding about the formation of the solar system. The, there's been a real revolution in how we think of the outer solar system. In one, in one way, that's why it's kind of a shame that it looks like the New Horizons people and people like Mike Brown are kind of at odds because they got their feelings hurt about the Pluto thing, because those, those those people are all these pioneers in the outer solar system, understanding things that we we couldn't see before. But now our instruments are powerful enough that we can that we can see out there, and we and we can discover these things. And uh, this would take it to a whole other level. The idea that there would be an object um, that is almost as big as Uranus and Neptune that probably was previously closer in and was ejected from uh, the solar system early in its formation, um, but that they said potentially um, one theory that they've got is that uh, it was so early in the formation that there was a lot of uh, gas from the nebula the, the, the solar system formed out of, and that acted as a drag. And so instead of getting ejected and, and being sent off into deep space, it was slowed down to the point where it fell into this far off orbit around the sun. So, you know, if, if it gets discovered, it will, uh, you know, remake our conceptions of how our solar system works and maybe how all solar systems work, but also it, uh, it makes us start to think about more details uh, about the formation of the solar system and what happened in the early days of the solar system. So just, it's fascinating all the way, all the way around, uh, you know, and we'll find out if it's real or not, but wouldn't it be cool? And then Brown actually, in one of his posts suggested, if it is real, um, somebody was saying, well, we're never going to be able to see it in our lifetimes because we just, you know, we just finally got something to go to Pluto and it took 10 years to get there. And Brown said, actually, you could probably do a fairly cheap mission that um, that was meant to fly by Planet Nine if you found it. Um, you'd probably need to uh, get it going off fast and shoot it. I think he suggested shooting it around the sun. So you'd end up with a like a super gravitational assist to get it to fling it out where you need it to go. But he thought that if people if they if we found it, it's not like we couldn't send uh, some, you know, send a probe to fly by it and and uh, get us uh, a better view of it in the next, I don't know, 10 or 20 years. So that's cool. I think we're going to wrap up this week uh, talking a little bit about the Challenger disaster. We spoke yeah. about it uh, on our shuttle episode, which we'll, we'll link to that. Um, but really kind of looking at the, uh, the, the, the aftermath and the, um, the human side of it. In the special episode, we talked about sort of the mechanics of the accident itself. And um, uh, want to point people uh, to a couple a couple of links. Um, there's a, a oral history over on Popular, Popular Mechanics, uh, talking to a lot of people who were involved. And um, I read through this; it's 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 quite long, but it's um it's really a a good read. And it's you know for me, kind of revisiting this. Um, it's it's thirty years this year. Um, 
it, it feels like, I mean, NASA did a day of remembrance on the 28th. Mm. Uh, it really feels like this anniversary is really focused on um, the the human lives that were lost, not only in the Challenger accident, but uh, in the um, Apollo 1 fire and also Columbia. Yeah, I mean, because these these anniversaries go so close together. In fact, I think this episode's going to be released on the anniversary of the of uh, of the Columbia uh, space shuttle breaking up on reentry. That um, they came they came in late January and early February, so it it becomes this day of remembrance for all of it. Mm-hmm. But you know, we've been thinking about the Challenger a lot this week because it's it's a thirtieth anniversary of that. And since you were born on the day that the Challenger disaster happened, it's your thirtieth birthday. So. Yay! I remember where I was on that day, and I guess you know where you were. So, <laughs> yeah, there, there's a um, there's a link to uh, National Geographic had a special called Challenger of the Lost Tapes, and I watched it the other the other evening, and it was it was really a look at the the behind the scenes, especially at the teacher in space program, which of course uh, is what makes this accident so much more heartbreaking is that there was a civilian on board. Um, and Kristen McCullough being the, the, the first, the first civilian on the space shuttle. And this, uh, this idea of this program was, you know, we're going to have, um, we're going to have a teacher go, um, go up and you know, they had other mission objectives, right? It wasn't just an, an educational mission, but that she was going to teach from space. And this, this, and it's like an hour long thing. Um, goes into some of the behind the scenes of that. And, you know, they spent basically a year training, but a year really crafting these uh, these lessons, if you will. And so you see there's video footage of, of her and the crew on the Vomit Comet, and she's, you know, doing these experiments mm-hmm. and seeing how these things are going to react in in low gravity. And, um, and of course, all of that really brought the nation together in a way that, that really hadn't happened i mean at this point this was the 25th uh shuttle launch yeah you know like we like we like we talked about it had become routine at this point um for the american people and for for nasa unfortunately and it's so you, ha- you have all this renewed interest right this um this national geographic special has footage from her school in the in the northeast and and there were these students gathered to watch it and um, there, this the the response in the room. I mean, it's really hard to to sit through and watch. Yeah, well, they they don't really understand that something's gone wrong at a, at some point, and then people basically let them know. And it, it's um, although I will point out because I watched this too that uh, it also for me I was I was a sophomore in high school when this happened. So when I, when they showed all that stuff of the people in the school, I had that moment of like, oh my god, you know. Uh, that's that is my high school life. Those those are those are my people essentially. Yeah. That that's what it looked like. So I can tell you, yes, that that's what people looked like in 1986. <laughs> that's what high school students looked like in 1986. They yeah. looked just like that. But it, it's yeah, it's it's hard to watch it because they don't understand what's going on, and you know they're there to cheer on their teacher, and then um, you know, and then this. It was all, you know, all orchestrated perfectly. And there's actually a moment in there where you see the the cameraman kind of runs to the from the 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 shot of the back of like the people watching the, the TV runs to the front of the stage and turns around and I thought in that moment like, you know, that's the cameraman saying to himself um, you know, this just became a different story. And uh and 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 the kids don't quite know it yet. Um yeah, it's uh that's tough stuff. 
uh, Jason, I'm really curious to hear your recollection of this. I mean, like you said, you were a sophomore in high school. I mean, was it, were y'all watching it? Was it, was it part of the, the, the day for you guys or what, what was that like? Uh, well, so I had first period, so I grew up in California and I had first period gym class. So I, um, I was apparently in gym class when the Challenger uh, disaster happened. Um, and so I, you know, went back to the locker room and dressed and we waited under the, I think it was maybe raining. We were waiting under the overhang and the bell rings and we go to the next period and it's my English class, sophomore lit. And, uh, and, uh, when we walk in the door, the teacher says, did you hear that the space shuttle blew up in a tactless way, I will say, but, um, and that was how I heard. So, so we, you know, we weren't watching it. The TVs, we had TVs in most of the classrooms and the TVs were on the rest of the day. Um, and I remember going to a science, whatever science class I had at the time, chemistry, maybe, um, I remember going and, uh, and, uh, just, you know, the, we just sat and watched the, the TV coverage. That was, that was it. I mean, it was sort of the science teachers really kind of got it. I think some of the other teachers, maybe not so much, but like the science and journalism and people like that, you just, we had the TVs on and we watched what was going on. And then the other thing I really remember is, um, it's funny. I remember the, I remember the, in the evening, I remember Ronald Reagan's speech and I remember Dan Rather on the CBS news, you know, coverage of it. Um, there's a popular mechanics story that I just pasted in, uh, we'll put in the show notes of, uh, it's the oral history of the space shuttle challenger disaster. It's got a lot of great, uh, quotes in it including some from dan rather about like the how you cover that as a news event and uh and uh i just that's that's what i actually remember and i i um i wish i had video of of dan rather's sort of uh last words on the on his coverage when he rapped that night because they were um they were kind of poetic and and uh and heartbreaking about about it just as the as the ronald reagan speech was so it was a tough day. I mean, that's that's it. Is that was you got to think about it. That is that is uh, American uh, dominance and uh, success in space as a highlight of the American um, experience from uh, from the Apollo program on, basically since the Apollo one accident. But if you you take that you take that after that moment, you know nothing like this happened until challengers so it was a real blow because the feeling was like the space shuttle was this um thing that you you know couldn't be stopped they were going to launch 16 times in in 1986 and uh it was just kind of part of the scenery that this was this was the inevitable progress of the uh, the united states in space and uh so it was it was quite a shock quite a blow because you know they're, they're not wrong when they say that the the space travel was treated as routine and the the networks didn't cover it and all of that. I mean, the, the news still covered it, but the whole idea was just sort of like we're gonna. This is what we do now: is we just put spaceships up all the time. Right. And and um, this was so that's that's one of the things about this that was so shocking is not only losing these seven seven people, including the the famous sort of teacher in space, uh, Krista McAuliffe, but um, but also just the shock of the fact that space was much less routine than we i would say than we had been led to believe by nasa yeah i mean of course it launched a huge uh investigation and uh, we spoke a lot about that in uh episode nine so i don't want to necessarily retread it but it it was very much a uh complete like from processes to management like the uh, a, a very big overhaul in the way 
in the way the agency did things. And it's, um, you know, it's so shocking reading that oral history and, and some of the other articles that the engineers predicted it and, 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 uh, voiced their opinion and, and it wasn't heard. And that's really what makes this whole thing. I think that the makes the tragedy so much worse is that it, it, if it had been, if they had waited till it would have been warmer weather, it could have been avoided. And, um, as far as we, as far as we know, yeah, yeah. There's a good movie um, about it that I mentioned before, but I'll mention it again. Called the Challenger Disaster, uh, starring William Hurt as Richard Feynman, uh, and it is it's really it's it's quite good about the um, investigation about the uh, about the the disaster by the by the government and the various forces. Uh, pushing and pulling against it and what Feynman does. Um, and, you know, it's a true story. In fact, you can see in the popular popular mechanics oral history, they talk about the um, since um, since Sally Ride died in 2012, I think um, one of the people on the committee has revealed since then. And I think it's in the movie that um, there was a document that NASA had that showed the O-ring issues and correlated it to temperature, like it is the smoking gun, right? That yeah. that was that was. I'm not sure whether they knew it beforehand, but somebody at NASA had figured this out. Whether either whether before or after NASA had figured this out, and Sally Ride, it turns out, gave this other person on the committee, on the investigation committee, this document because it needed to not come from her, but mm-hmm. she she gave that document, and uh, and then the guy who had it, and this scene is in that movie. Guy, the guy who had it needed to find a way to communicate to Feynman about this information without, um, again, giving up his source, who turns out to be Sally Ride. And the way he does it is he's got a he's like a, a guy who who collects old cars and fixes them up. And, and he brings Feynman to his house and they have dinner and he says, come out into the garage. And Feynman doesn't care about the car. Um, it's a great scene. He doesn't care about cars or anything, but they're talking about the this. And, and you know, Feynman's curious. He's a scientist. Um, and he's got this uh, engine kind of taken apart and there's a carburetor there. Um, and uh, and Feynman says, you know, what's th- what's this? And and the guy says, that's a carburetor. Um, and then he pauses and he, he basically says, um, it's got an old it's got an O-ring seal on it. Um, you know, what's funny about those O-ring, those rubber O-ring seals is that when it gets very cold, they become much stiffer and, uh, and, and, uh, don't bend around, uh, pressure and they're much harder to deal with. That's interesting. Don't you think Dr. Feynman? And he says, yeah, that is interesting. And in the oral history, you'll see that the guy says, we said no more about it and we went away. Mm-hmm. And like the next Monday we did our first open session of the, of the committee. And that, and that's what happens is the famous thing where Feynman dunks the, uh, he takes the O-ring sample away that they've been passing around and he puts it in his ice water cup and get, do, does the demonstration right there. And that completely changes the story um, and reveals what was really going behind it. So it's a, it's a, it's a good, interesting story. Feynman is a fascinating guy and it's a good dramatization of that. So I, it's, it's uh, you can, I think you can rent or buy it pretty cheap. I don't think, I don't know if it's on streaming, but it's definitely available like on Amazon as a, as a download. Um, and maybe some other places too. And I recommend it. It's a good, uh, it's a good movie. Yeah. And, um, I found links for a bunch of this stuff. So the, uh, that, that Feynman, uh, example actually is on video. So we have yeah. a link uh, to a blog post about that. And it's, it's, it's pretty, um, 
I don't know what the right adjective is, but it's it's um the smoking gun uh, picture I think is a good one that he's basically like look this is clearly an issue, um and in in a way uh, sort of the brilliance of that is that it's demoed in a way where it makes complete sense to anyone watching, right? So just even to the public, it's brilliant. Well, I mean, Feynman Feynman was great as being a science communicator, and that's exactly what happens in that case. Is is uh he's he's demoing why this uh te- the temperature is connected to the the accident yeah it looks like you can buy it for like three dollars on amazon so if you you know maybe check it out very cool uh, i think that uh does it for this fortnight jason yeah i think so i mean i i, I just wanted to say again that we talked about it in the, in the space shuttle episode a little bit too there's a there's a memorial at uh kennedy space center for the apollo one astronauts and the challenger and uh, columbia astronauts and uh, this is this is the time every year where it's worth stopping and thinking about the people who uh not just from america but from uh, other countries who have uh who have died in pursuit of uh furthering human spaceflight and uh this is as good a time as any and i'm sorry that it comes on your birthday every year but that's just uh i can remember your birthday i never forget when when it's your birthday so (laughs) you've got that going for you i've got that going for me um so you can find uh links to all this stuff in your podcast app of choice or on our website Uh, this week we are at relay.fm slash liftoff slash 13 uh, some of this stuff will also be on our newly minted Tumblr that Woo. we talked about, liftoffpodcast.tumblr.com. Uh, you can get in touch with us uh, either place. You can uh, leave uh, comments on Twitter as well. The show is at liftoffpodcast. Jason is at Snell. I'm at ISMH. Uh, Jason writes at sixcolors.com, and I write at 512pixels.net. Um, and uh, we'd like to hear from you guys. If you guys have uh, suggestions for topics or uh, questions you want answers to, we will do our best as, as two, as I like to say, two non-professional people yep. uh, in this in this field, but um, uh, like uh, like talking about this stuff. So it's fun to to go learn uh, alongside the listeners sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, until next fortnight, say goodbye, Jason. Goodbye, everybody. Adios. Adios.